one year ago today, this whole thing officially became our life. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. For the first time, the World Health Organization declaring the outbreak of COVID-19 a global pandemic. The past 12 months have proven that no part of our society was equipped for what was to come. They've also proven that some parts of our infrastructure were already just a single problem away from disaster. And then the problem came, and the disaster followed. Many disturbing stories from many other long-term care facilities across the country. At Tenderville Care Living Center, 43 residents have now died from COVID-19 during this outbreak. Geraldine Stringer has been locked down, the virus racing through her home. She hasn't been allowed out in five weeks. I've been very alone. And I know At least 31 residents from a private care home in Montreal have died in the last month. What we found was uh, inhumane, horrific. The conditions were disgusting. When you look at the number of COVID-19 deaths in this country, nearly half are the result of seniors who were in some type of care facility who died uh, because of the disease. It's not fair to say that Canada's long-term care facilities and all our other elder care programs should have been completely and totally prepared for a once-in-a-century pandemic. But if that system, if you can even call it a system, wasn't already in shambles, there's no question that lives, hundreds, maybe even thousands of lives, would have been saved. And so now, one year later, what have we learned about how we care for our elders in this country? Just how badly did our lack of care and lack of resources cost us? Who or what is to blame for it and beyond blame and grief and loss and horror stories? How fast can we fix this? Because we can fix it. We just have to do it. So where do we start? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Andre Picard is a health reporter at The Globe and Mail and the author of Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic. Hey, Andre. Hi. Why don't you start by telling us where this book came from? You know, uh, I've read that it was written uh, during this pandemic, but was it started and inspired uh, by COVID-19 or was this you know, a topic that was that was in your mind um, before our world went to hell? I would say it's inspired by COVID-19. So a lot of things, you know, the pandemic shone a light on a lot of failings in society. And I think it really shone the brightest light on the failings of uh, how we treat our elders. So it came out of that. You know, I, I've written several books. So I was approached to write books about COVID and I wasn't interested. I think the the best COVID book will probably be written in 10 or 20 years. So I, I was more interested in writing in something that it exposed. So I thought elder care is a topic I've written about for many years. So this was a perfect opportunity to, to wade into that. Well, before we get into uh, exactly how COVID has exposed uh, these flaws and, and what we can do about them, maybe can you elaborate a bit on how the system uh, pre-pandemic was failing our elders? 
Yeah, I think first of all, it's not really a system, so it's this loose collection of of different services for older people. Mm. Uh, so long-term care we know about, it's these homes, private and public homes that are, have some manner of oversight provincially or municipally, so there's a lot of those. Then there's uh, seniors' facilities, more retirement homes, which have even less oversight. And in total, those have about 400,000 people living in them, so a lot of people live in these institutional settings. And then you have the home care sector, which is, you know, not really funded by Medicare, but partly funded by Medicare, mostly funded out of pocket. So again, not really uh, much oversight. And then you have the whole, all these older people uh, living in the community and often living with very little money. You know, you're retired, you have the old age benefit, which is very minimal, and they don't have housing, etc. They don't have services. Uh, they end up going into a lot of these homes by default because they just, you know, can't shovel the walk anymore. Uh, the house is too big. Uh, little mundane things send us into this this cascade of care that we don't really want. So well before the pandemic, there was a, a big problem. There was a, a real lack of coordination and services. And then this virus came along and it just, you know, it was the perfect storm for uh, attacking seniors, especially those living in this institutional setting, you know, often three, four bed rooms, uh, people moving in and out, bringing the virus in. So it just uh, was a disaster from the beginning to end of this pandemic. You began that last answer by saying, you know, it's not really a system. Is that the problem at the heart of this, that we're just not organized? That's part of the problem. I think the problem is even more fundamental. I think the problem is almost a philosophical one that we don't value elders the way we should. Mm -hmm. You know, I think everybody like individually loves their mom, loves their grandmother, you know, respects older people. We honor veterans every year, but our, our policies just don't reflect that. Our policies are, are quite ageist uh, from beginning to end. Uh, and, you know, just a good example of it is people end up in these homes by default. Uh, I call it in the book, elder apartheid. You stop making a wage, you stop having money, you're older, you start having some illnesses, off you go to this home never to be seen again. Is that a lack of care uh, as a whole or, or lack of respect or maybe empathy? I'm, I'm not sure. But, you know, one of the things that I've heard so much uh, during this pandemic and, and not always from people on the right or the left, but when we talk about reopening as we're in another round of or we talk about concerns about businesses staying afloat and how much risk is enough, a lot of people talk about the death rate and they say, you know, this virus only really kills old people. And there's there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of weight behind that. Yeah, I hear that often. I've heard it day after day, and I find it you know really insulting for one thing to older people, and it's also wrong. Uh, the reality is, yes, uh, older people die. Uh, that's normal. We're all going to die, but the numbers are just through the roof. So your normal long-term care home would have two, three maybe four deaths a month if there's 200 people living there. During the pandemic, we had homes that had 100 deaths in a month. This is totally off the chart. So it's not, it's not normal in any way that people are dying. And it's especially not normal that they're dying the way they are, you know, abandoned, not enough care, uh, often, you know, just lying in their feces because the, the homes are overwhelmed. This, this is really gruesome, horrible stuff that occurred. And we shouldn't excuse it in any way, shape, or form. It's not pleasant um, 
to think about or talk about, and especially if you're you're not connected to it and you don't see the reality of it. But maybe for those people, could you give us a sense of the scale of COVID's impact in those homes relative to it in the regular uh, population? Like out of the Canadians who have died during this pandemic from COVID, you know, what percentage of them have been uh, elderly people in these care homes? Well, it's actually a shocking number. There's been uh, just over 22,000 COVID deaths in Canada, and more than 16,000 of those deaths have been in these institutional facilities. So long-term care, homes, seniors, residences. So that's uh, up around 80%. So it really is a, a, a pandemic that has just ravaged the elder care community. But that doesn't mean we should excuse it. We shouldn't just say it's because they're old. It's not. It's because we failed to care for them because they're older. Well, for those of us who don't have a parent or a loved one in one of these facilities, do you think that that those Canadians really get uh, what happens in there and what the conditions can be like? and Or do we just hear about it when disaster strikes? I think people don't have a sense of it. I, I think a lot of it we don't want to know. We want to turn away. No one wants to think of their parents being in these facilities. Uh, I would say to people, get ready because we're all going there, right? We're all getting older. The population is aging. And that's actually a good thing. We should be celebrating the fact that we live much longer. We live better. But at the end of life, we need more care. So that's a reality that our system hasn't adapted to and that we haven't wrapped our minds around totally. But but we're all going there. And that's probably the signal. Most important reason all of us should be interested in this issue. Now, the homes themselves, these are not bad places. A lot There's a lot of good care a lot of well-meaning people, a lot of great workers, but it's just the the way it's structured, it's just perfect for the spread of illness, for neglect, because they tend to be off out of the city, they're unseen, they're large facilities because we get, uh, you know, economies of scale, we save money, uh, we put people four to a room, again, just to, to count our nickels and dimes to save a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. All this is done, uh, you know, I think it is sort of a well-intentioned way and a backwards way of thinking, but it's just not the way people should be cared for. It's not dignified. Uh, it's not uh, personalized care. It's like this uh, assembly line where the workers have to do X number of changing of, right. of uh, continence pads per hour, etc. It's not the kind of care people want where there's interaction and, and respect so tell me how you went about digging into this book, which I imagine must be different from others you've written because I'm I'm guessing that you weren't allowed anywhere near a long-term care facility during the course of the pandemic and you know how did you how did you hear stories how did you get them and then how much of the reporting was more uh, systemic than than anecdotal yeah, it was a little different from other books. Normally, you're right. I would be in there. I'd be all over the, the facilities getting color. So one way to do to deal with it was it's, it's a shorter book. This book is only 200 pages. I don't have the normal color I would have, you know, describing the facilities. But it is a book that's really focused on people. So I found a lot of people. And I tried to... I took a deliberate tact where I didn't take the worst case stories. Mm. I took sort of the normal, here's a person having a pretty good go of it. Uh, they're in a nice home, uh, but they've been transferred home five times. They couldn't get home care, but you know they're not 
dying of poverty or anything. So I tried to get sort of middle-of-the-road people just to show even for those who have money, even for those who are well-educated, who know how to maneuver a system, it just becomes overwhelming. So the book is all, each chapter is a, tells the story of uh, one or two families or workers and just their daily reality. Uh, see, in some cases, I asked them to, you know, I couldn't go in the home. I sort of asked them to bring the iPad and show me around. So you, you kind of, uh, with all our pandemic journalism, we've adapted to this, and that was one way of doing it. As somebody who's uh, reported about elder care uh, many, many times, even pre-pandemic, what has surprised you about the past year and, and in reporting this book? What, what really stuck out? Well, I think what struck me is how people are still uh, very hopeful, uh, the, how the families are very forgiving of what's going on. I think the families who live this, you know, often their loved ones are in these facilities for, for years. They understand that who should be blamed. They don't blame the workers. You know, the workers are totally overwhelmed. The workers are well-intentioned. So are a lot of the owners. So I think people are frustrated just with the policies and the failings of politicians to address this. So I think I, I was really surprised by the sophistication of the, of the discussion, how people understand what's wrong and who should be to blame. And uh, that, that's really interesting and fascinating. Uh, it's not these knee-jerk responses. People really think about this and they've put, and they understand, you know, that uh, some of these policies like uh, locking them out from homes, you know, that was devastating. People are literally dying of loneliness in these homes. And the, the families understand why that was done, but they tried to find practical solutions and they were frustrated by the, the unwillingness to, to meet them halfway. I'm glad that you mentioned blame because I think uh, for a lot of people who, you know, again, may not even have a personal stake in this, but will obviously as their their family members or they themselves age, you look at some of the images and stories that we heard from these places and you can feel enraged and you can really want to find who's responsible for it. And I think over the past uh, 12 months, I've heard a ton of different explanations from the federal government to the provincial government to the for-profit system to lobbyists and, you know, former politicians being on the boards of some of these places. And, and I don't know where to assign that blame. Yeah, if we want to blame uh, people, there's a lot of blame to go around. I think nobody escapes it. Uh, even individuals in society, I think we hold some of the blame for just turning a blind eye to this. We've written about these failings for, for many years. So all of us share the blame. Uh, there's been, uh, I write in the book, 150 reports written over the years how to fix this system. Huh. Uh, so in the book, I say, you know, I don't think we need another inquiry. Uh, I think with very few exceptions, I don't think we're going to see uh, people going to jail or anything. It wasn't criminal acts. It was just a ne systemic neglect. So every report that's written always blames the system. So my conclusion in the book is I say, quite bluntly, well, fix the damn system then. That's where we should put our energies, not looking for trying to figure out what went wrong. We know that already. Not trying to blame people. Sending some people to jail is not going to fix this. Let's spend our time and our energy actually fixing the system. Why hasn't the system been fixed then? And what will it take to do it if we've already had 150 reports saying this is what's needed? I think it will take the public uh, saying to politicians and saying to policymakers, we want 
uh, our laws, we want our uh, spending, our social programs, we want them to reflect our values. So I think it's ultimately about putting our values into force. I think everybody respects elders in society. And I think they want that reflected in policies. So I think the willingness is there now. Uh, politicians, uh, let's be real about this, politicians lead from behind. They'll do whatever the public is willing to tolerate. And I think the public is saying, do this now. So I think there's a real opportunity here. How do we take advantage of that opportunity? This can seem um, like a monumental task. You know, to your point earlier, there isn't even really a system to fix, right? Like, where would we start? Yeah, so that's one of the biggest barriers is people think it's overwhelming. So I try and make the point in the book that it's not. Everything is doable. Uh, everything is fixable. And in fact, I, I always stress that we have a lot of good care. And all we have to do is take our successes and scale them up. And that's that's pretty easy to do. So I have chapters. Uh, there's one about uh, Sunnybrook Veterans Centre in Toronto, which has spectacularly good long-term care. A great facility. We do it in Canada. We've done it for decades. All we have to do is make other homes look like that. Uh, we have great home care agencies. Uh, well, let's replicate them. Let's not uh, bring in new ones that are not as good. Let's replicate all our successes. So I think uh, I don't think it's as overwhelming as we think. Uh, the ar other argument is, oh, it's going to cost too much money. Uh, I don't think that's true either. Uh, we've shown during this pandemic, we've spent, what, $300, $400 billion in COVID aid. What's another $5 billion to fix a long-term care system? Mm -hmm. it's, it's peanuts in the grand scheme of things, and it'll have lasting value. It'll pay off. Uh, the reality, too, is we spend a lot of money now, and we spend it on mediocre care. So if we spend it a little better, we get more value for money. We're not talking about a lot of extra money, but there is some money required after decades of neglect. We can't hide that, but it's not a, this is not an unfixable uh, problem. It's very fixable, and it can be fixed in the short term. If we're going to create a real system, you know, that presumably has standards that can be applied uh, across the board, does that mean the end of the for-profit LTC model? You know, I think I, I like to answer that question in two ways. One, I say, if we didn't have for-profit homes, would be no great loss. We don't need them. There are countries that have no for-profit homes that have great care. There are other countries with a lot of for-profit care. They have great care. I, I think that issue is just a distraction. Uh, it's a simplistic solution to a, a complicated issue. I think the one the people, uh, the owners that we have to get out of the system are essentially the the slum landlords. These uh, companies that are just really real estate companies. They're patients, uh, their residents are just treated like widgets that bring in monthly income. Those are the ones we have to get rid of. And they're a very small number. But beyond that, it's about, you know, we have to recognize every for-profit, every uh, public, every non-profit home gets the same amount of money for care. So they're all getting the same starting point. And the problem with the for-profits becomes the real estate part of the equation, which is something different than the healthcare. So I think we, this is a complex issue. And we, if we just have these simple answers like, oh, get rid of the for-profits, everything will be fine, it won't be fine. We have a lot to do beyond that. And the final thing I say about that is, I always laugh when I hear that, you know, if we just nationalize the homes, everything will be fine. I, I don't know of any other part of the... Uh, of our daily lives where people say more government is a solution. Right. I, I just don't see that as, as magically solving anything, having more government. Speaking of government, how much of fixing this would rely on the federal government and the provinces working together uh, to make sure that the funding is adequate, that the care is adequate, 
And and what is the likelihood of that? Because we've seen a lot of buck passing between the two levels of government during all of this past year. Yeah, I think there's no question governments, different levels of government, municipal, provincial, federal, they have to cooperate to fix this. But we have to stop using our constitution as an excuse for failure. And that's what we're doing in this case. There's no barrier, uh, constitutional barrier to fixing this. Governments can sit down and agree to things. Uh, Take a practical example. We're talking these days about standards of care. So people are lobbying, let's get a minimum of four hours of hands-on care for every person living in a long-term care facility. That's a reasonable goal, easily doable, probably requires a little bit of money from Ottawa and then for provinces to do it. All you have to do is sit down in a room and sign a piece of paper. Here's how much money you'll get if you do this. Here's what'll happen if you don't do it. You'll be, uh, take this much of money away. That's a pretty simple thing to resolve. And that's every one of these problems we have, that's how we have to do it in a very focused manner. Uh, find the financing, find the proper regulatory approach, and it's all doable. But we can't do what we do now. You know, there are some provinces, uh, for example, British Columbia has a, a law that says every person gets 3.36 hours of care daily, but they only fund about 2.5 hours. So you can't do mm. that. There has to be logic in the way we uh, both fund and regulate, and they have to be connected. So we can't have these uh, fantasies where we say, oh yeah, everybody's going to get four hours of care and then only fund three. That's not going to work. Speaking of things like hands-on care. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is if fixing the whole system does seem overwhelming to a lot of people, in your reporting, what are the practical things like hands-on care that we could start implementing tomorrow if the will was there for it that would make the most difference? Yeah, I think that question is an important one. Where do you start? I think you start where the biggest problem exists. And the biggest problem right now is staffing. So healthcare is all about people, caring for people. We don't have an adequate number of people. We don't have the right people uh, delivering care, both in the community and in facilities. So that's where we have to start. So start with the standards of care, uh, guarantee a minimum of four hours. Ontario has done this. They've said, they've committed to it. They'll, they've said it, what will cost $1.8 billion not overwhelming, but they've said they're going to do it in two years. Mm. So what would I do? I I would accelerate that. There's no reason we can't do it this year rather than in two years. So there's a really practical solution to a really big problem. That's where you start. And then you build from there. Uh, Another big issue is infrastructure. So we've got these old homes that look like prisons. We should really have home-like facilities. So you start phasing them out. Uh, I say in the book we should make judicious use of the wrecking ball. Get rid of some of these old homes where so many people got infected because they were just built for the spread of disease and start replacing them with smaller 20, 30 bed homes and do that gradually. But it all takes investment, it all takes planning, but most of all it just takes a commitment to do it. Last question, Andre, and, and this is a weird one to ask, but given everything that we've seen uh, over the past year and you know how sad and enraging it's been, um, are you optimistic that because of all that, there might finally be uh, the will for change on this? You know, as you look beyond the pandemic, um, what do you think? 
Yeah, you know, I, as journalists, we don't tend to be very optimistic types, but I, I am optimistic. I think, you know, if 16,000 dead doesn't uh, make us fix this, uh, nothing ever will. So I do see this as an opportunity. I also am optimistic because I, I think our politicians have, have recognized this. And I think more importantly, I think the public wants this fixed. They see it as a priority. Uh, I've, I do all these, uh, doing all these book-related interviews, lots of them with call-ins, and there's just a passion for we got to fix this for my mom and my grandmother mm -hmm. and we have to fix it for me. Uh, I, I've been really inspired by all the young people who've taken this issue to heart and said, yeah, we got we to gotta get this done before I get there and before my grandmother gets any sicker. So I, I think the, the, almost the perfect storm is there to, to cash in on this opportunity. So we, we should do it and we shouldn't let it pass. I hope you're right. Andre, thank you for this interview. Thank you uh, for writing that book. And, and thanks for your hard work during the past year. You've been an incredibly valuable voice. It's much appreciated. Well, thanks for your interest. Andre Picard, health reporter at The Globe and Mail and author of Neglected No More. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can take our survey, tell us how you feel about what we've been doing for the past year, you can also talk to us and tell us where you've been for the last year at The Big Story FPN on Twitter. You can email us, The Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. If you like this podcast and you don't already follow us on your podcast platform of choice, go do that so you get every single episode. I want every last one of your downloads. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>